Welcome to Humans of Twitter, a podcast where we discover the stories behind the people behind the Twitter accounts. People that are interesting, opinionated, and surprising. I'm your host, Steve Malk, and today I'm speaking with someone who describes themselves as researching and evaluating health services, public health, and health equity in Western Sydney. Deputy Director CHETRE, part of at CPHCE underscore UNSW. Humans of Twitter is their stories in their words in a little more than 140 characters. Please welcome today's addition to the Humans of Twitter list, Ben Harris-Rojas. G'day, Steve. How are you going? I'm doing very well, Ben. Thank you so much for joining me. Can I ask to start with, in social settings, how do you introduce yourself? Uh, well, uh, Ben Harris-Rojas is my name. Um, the, the Rojas part tends to throw people off a little bit, uh, double-barreled mm-hmm. names and so on. Um, when I introduce myself, I probably use a descriptor pretty similar to what you read out from uh, my Twitter bio. I'm, I, I'm a health researcher, uh, interested in the things that not just treat illness, but also stop people from getting sick in the, p- the first place. Um, the alphabet soup that you sort of read out at the beginning um, <laughs> is uh, the organisation I work for. is called the Centre for Health Equity training, research and evaluation, which is sometimes shortened to C-H-E-T-R-E or um, which is transliterated, I guess, as um, Chetra. And so what that's about is interventions that improve health and um, improve, more importantly, the health of people who are most vulnerable or disadvantaged um, with a particular focus on Western Sydney. So that, that's, mm. that's me in a nutshell. That, that's a pretty sizable nutshell, Ben. It is, yeah. <laughs> I just mean in in the breadth and scope of of what your day to day role is, mm. that's all very serious. It sounds a bit like it, doesn't it? Um, in a day to day sense, I don't know that it is. Um, so, uh, by way of background, I started out my working life as a sort of social worker, and then drifted into research over time, and then worked a bit in the um, private sector, and have actually just come back to university research and so on. So. What that actually looks like on a, a day-to-day basis is um, lots of meetings and lots of discussions <laughs> with other health service people and lots of researchers. Um, yes. I'm based out in Western Sydney um, at a research institute out there. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a good mixture for me of, uh, you know, desk work, stuff at the computer, talking with people and actually getting out in the real world. So uh, I'm pretty fortunate from that perspective. Do you feel in your role at, at Chetra that... Um, you guys are achieving the things that the, the organisation is set up to do? Uh, sometimes, on a, on a good day, I do. So um, the organisation <laughs> is uh, it's applied research, so I'm not sort of doing, mm. um, you know, basic research or lab-based stuff. I'm uh, getting out there and dealing with people and so on. And so um, as part of that, we've got relationships with different organisations. I'm part of the University of New South Wales. I've got... Re- links to health services in southwest Sydney um, and some of the, the research, other research groups out there. So, look, I think, I think we are. We're finding out some of the stuff about um, what can make a difference in the lives of people and decision-making. Um, our big areas of, I guess, focus, uh, looking at what makes a difference for communities and populations. So that's often intervening at a place or area level, but it's also about what makes a difference for specific communities and population groups. So a big line of our research has been um, with 
Aboriginal communities and people in southwest Sydney. Yes. And I think that's been a really important area of work. And um, some of my colleagues, I'm not directly involved in this, have been running a cohort study, like trying to follow, follow up um, kids who are born in southwest Sydney, Aboriginal kids, um, to see what factors influence their life and their, their development and so on. So that's been one of the larger um, Aboriginal child cohort studies um, that's been done in Australia. So, you know, we're getting involved in some interesting stuff. I don't know that we've got all the solutions, but we're trying to move beyond describing problems to actually figuring out what makes a difference to, to people, really. In the midst of this, what for you is a source of strength? Hmm. I think I, one of the challenges always with this stuff is that you can be a bit myopic. Um, so mm -hmm. what I try to do and what things like Twitter and so on is useful for is exposing me to new ideas, different types of things, different ways of thinking, um, the serendipitous connections that I think give me at a practical level um, strength, but also sort of fuel me with new ideas. So that's one of the challenges I think is with this stuff, when you're trying to sort of figure out what will make a difference in the lives of, of people, um, you can seize upon a sort of an idea or a set of ideas and think that's the way to proceed. And in research, you can often end up sort of uh, researching yourself into a dead end. Either the area doesn't yield um, as much promising results as you thought it would, or the world moves on, it becomes less uh, relevant to sort of policy and practice. So one of the things that I think gives me, I guess, day-to-day -day strength is, um, yeah, that exposure to new ideas and new people um, and being, I guess, willing to think of different ways of tackling problems and so on. So uh, that's probably why I've ended up being a bit of a prolific tweeter over the years, um, partly because it's uh, a sign of mild attention deficit disorder, but um, <laughs> also because... It, uh, it gives me, you know, an insight into new ways of thinking and doing stuff. Some of the problems you would face on a day-to-day -day basis would be because of uh, hearing some of those new ideas and, and, and interacting with some of those people, though, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, so I'm very fortunate the people I work with uh, get on really well with. Um, but it's interesting, I mm -hmm. guess, maybe because I've been an early adopter of Twitter and so on, I'm occasionally perceived by others, um, I hasten to add, not necessarily by myself, as um, someone who has views on a range of public health things. So um, in terms of, uh, you know, some of the challenges I encounter, the one that springs to mind always is that uh, I cop a fair bit of flack from um, people who are pro e-cigarettes and vaping because I've, mm -hmm. um, I guess, been pretty sceptical about uh, the motivations of a lot of the e-cig manufacturers in the industry um, over the years and so on. So I guess it's that you're right to say that getting exposure to new ideas can also be a source of um, challenges because you sort of also uh, can be perceived by others as taking a different stance to what you actually are or you know, also being cast as a bit of a, a villain, I guess, just by um, thinking that vaping mm. might not be the best thing in the world, for example. So that's just a that's just a concrete example of uh, what you're, you're talking about. You know, getting yourself out there can be a bit of a two-edged sword. You can make new um, friends and learn new things, but you can also, uh, I guess... Um, Gain, let's let's not say enemies, but uh, you know people who are skeptical <laughs> yeah. of you and your motives as well. So it's it's that thing of 
getting out there in, in public life, I guess. So where is the line between public and private for you? Oh, mate, I've no idea. Like, I used to have this sort of thought of, um, you know, delineate the sort of uh, public self, you know, work-related stuff or, you know, stuff related to ideas that don't relate to me in my private life or private capacity. Um, but it's, you know, the more time goes on, I realise that's a sort of false distinction and so on. Um, I guess, you know, some of the stuff about my family and friends, I tend to not blather about too much on the, the public um, facing side of the internet, like, you know, Twitter mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, but then again, you know, if people want to find out stuff about me, they can. I'm, I guess relatively speaking, I am kind of an open book. You know, you can find pictures of me going back decades or more from Flickr and so on. So um, it is something I struggle with a bit, you know, because uh, the private and the public, um, it's really what that boils down to, like privacy and what the private self is, is the idea that, that you can have more than one presentation of yourself or more than one version of yourself, you know, like that that you can act and behave one way in a certain sphere of your life and another in, a, in another setting. So, um, I don't know, I struggle day to day, you know, sometimes. And, and yeah. it's not just, it's not just sort of the public private internet stuff. It's also, you know, depending on what hat you're wearing, like we were talking about work earlier, you know, I've got to um, be mm-hmm. mindful of um, work relationships and work commitments and so on when I speak in that setting. But also even at work, you know, we all have different roles and different capacities that we have to talk about and so on. So I think that's that's something I think I struggle with, but probably everyone does as well. You know, the what um, sense of yourself you want to emphasize in different settings. So yeah, mm-hmm. we're all more complicated than we seem on first um, glance. Well, we can be. Sometimes some of us live <laughs> a very public existence where there's very little even in a monologue. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> That is true. That is true. Yeah, you just think, oh, I wonder what would happen if we scratch the surface and you realise uh, there is, there's just surface. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> or that that's just everything. Like what we see on the surface goes right to the core. Exactly. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. there is no deeper self. Or I remember Bob um, Carr of all, pla- of all people talked about you know, the need to have this inner citadel, this sort of internal life that no one else can get at and so on. Yes. And then I think about that and I think, well, how does that reconcile with how you actually, you know, conduct yourself on a whole manner of issues and so on? So um, I think, uh, yeah, some of us have got a bit of an inner citadel. Some of us have got, you know, some sort of falling down walls on the outskirts of a building or something like that. So, and, and some of us, there's, 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 there is no inner life at all. So um, for me... Look, I, I probably have a few different areas of interest that are, you know, I'm pretty out there, pretty open with people about what I'm about and what my motivations are. But, yeah, it is interesting that, you know, the, the way we sort of construct ourselves and our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, even this morning I was reading this interesting thing about uh, from the Washington Post about a 13-year-old girl and it's sort of, it's sort of a, you know, in my social science brain and role, I would think it's almost like a, an ethnography of what it's like to be a 13-year-old girl now in, from a relatively privileged white background in America and so on. And just the nature of her interactions and the importance of things like Instagram and, you know, the online mm. world to connect with her friends and so on. But 
what was really interesting from that is how actively and very consciously she was sort of curating and updating her, uh, pre, you know, representation of the self. And I just thought, oh, God, that's yes. so exhausting. You know, even as someone who does live probably more online than most people, I thought, God, this sounds exhausting, you know. So <laughs> I think that's probably why I don't give too much thought to the different um, aspects of my, you know, my myself and my life just because it takes up too much energy to sort of uh, to try and compartmentalise yourself in that way. I feel for that girl's parents i have an, a nine-year-old girl and an 11 year old boy and i'm exhausted um i can't imagine what it's like for them at times just trying to deal with the myriad input uh opportunities and and things that are i mean we all went through it as teenagers trying to determine the things that were important or the things that we perceived to be important in our lives mm. However, I remember to my teenage years and go, I had about six things to pick between. Yeah, oh, exactly. And and you had the virtue of that not being documented and recorded in quite the same mm. way, you know? Like I've, I've got a, an, a seven-year-old daughter and a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And it's really interesting. Just the experience of being a seven-year-old now is so different, you know, because oh, yeah. um, even though the, the sort of formation of yourself it's probably not that different as a fundamental process. The fact that, mm. like you're saying, different, you know, the fact that she's got a record of her entire life and she can sort of figure out who who she wants to see that and so on as well. And, you know, that, that sort of baggage of history is something you can't get away from, you know, whereas I think about various mistakes I've made in my life and so on, it's fantastic that I've been able to almost forget about that and mercifully most other people have as well. So... It is mm. it is a different sort of um, world they inhabit. Yeah. yeah, kids that that messed up in my day didn't have the chance for that ending up on the front page of news.com.au because you know it involved something like it may have been bad yeah. and we may have talked about yeah. it for a week at school yeah. or gone into mm. legend, but it never ended up permanently on the internet. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So uh, I don't. I'm conscious I sound a bit like sort of cranky old man, you know, yelling at clouds or whatever, but it is a, it's a different thing, you know, where there's not, there is this sort of permanence, you know. And um, just yesterday there was a, an interesting thing I noticed on Twitter that was getting tossed around um, where a guy had been abusing uh, Nova Paris Nebone um, on mm-hmm. her Facebook page um, and it was just interesting because I think even though it was vile, abusive stuff that he was saying, it's the kind of stuff that I, I wonder if he and people like him actually recognised when they were doing it, the, the extent to which these things can be shared, that they'll be permanent, that they'll always be Googleable and associated with his name from now on, you know. And so it is interesting that sort of, yeah. you know, the, the whole permanence thing and how that maybe it will eventually lead us to being a bit more candid about what it's like to be a human, you know, and the, our failings and so on. But yep. for the time being, it seems like, you know, it's, you just got to be constantly vigilant and um, attentive to how you actually present that sort of information online. So, yeah, well, I'm, I'm, it's interesting. Yeah. I'm certainly having those discussions with my kids mm. that, you know, while the internet isn't necessarily permanent, things live far longer there than they do just in the, you know, the real life. Mm. That said, I've tried to have that discussion with my parents and they don't get it. You only have to have a look at my Facebook timeline sometimes and see some of the comments that they're they're proffering to 
not even things that I've posted, but you know, you know how Facebook works. You respond or put a comment on someone else's thing, it pops up in your timeline. Yeah. And my parents stalk my timeline. <laughs> I should just block them entirely. And so they, for example, a friend of mine in Perth was looking for a comedian to do a gig, professional, nothing more than that. I tagged a few comedians in the comment um, just to say, hey, guys, like, are you interested? And I thought that was it and left it to them. And then all of a sudden my parents are commenting on something. Oh, shame the gig's not in Sydney. What? <laughs> are you even paying attention to what is being said here? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you don't want to see, you know, your mum and dad picking fights on the, you know, Cole's Facebook page or something like oh. that, you know. So it is, it is um, ch- changing and all the dynamics of that is tricky so mercifully i know what my parents think about some of those sorts of issues and i'm glad that they have learnt through our interchanges that i a don't appreciate b won't tolerate and c am not going to allow them to sully uh anything that my friends might see if they're going to throw out something that is inappropriate or poorly judged to be appropriate Mm, that's my parents yeah yeah moderating your parents' online interactions, you know, it's not something oh. you ever thought you'd, you'd be doing. So. It was almost the worst thing I ever did, encouraging them to get a laptop when they said, we're going to travel around Australia. <laughs> oh, well, you can keep in touch. No, don't. <laughs> don't. Ben, can I ask, what prompted the the desire to move into social work? Originally, um, oh, look, I guess in terms of my early life experiences, I always had this sort of idea or exposure to, to the fact that um, not everyone's life was the same as my own and that I did have a pretty lucky childhood. But I guess, unlike some others, the, the difference between people whose lives were relatively privileged and, um, you know, uncomplicated wasn't as sort of um, far rem- of which I count myself, wasn't as far removed from some of the people who were pretty hard up growing up. So I um, spent a fair chunk of my childhood uh, growing up in Burke, which is a rural community in um, sort of far west New South Wales. You know, the back of Burke, you might have heard as, <laughs> as an expression. Yes. So um, it's, it's a town of about 3,000 people. Uh, the population sort of goes up and down and with a big old Aboriginal population. And I remember even in preschool, because... Um, I used to live not too far from the preschool, but they had a bus that would drop all the kids off after preschool. And I used to love um, catching the preschool bus and actually asked to get dropped off last because um, I could, right. you know, we'd go and see where everyone else lived. And um, Burke uh, has a reservation, which is like the old um, Aboriginal settlement, um, well, where people were, uh, I guess, forcibly relocated to historically. But, um, you know, growing up, even as a four-year-old kid, seeing that, kids back in that era um, were living in, you know, very materially deprived conditions, you know, and sort of basically lean-tos back then, though I hasten to add the housing conditions have gotten a lot better there um, since then. It did give me an appreciation, I think, from a pretty young age that not everyone's life was the same as my own. I guess it was only because Mm -hmm. I had that first-hand exposure. So I think things like that and then Later, we lived in Vanuatu for a few years um, in the late 80s. Uh, also gave me a bit of an appreciation that, yeah, not everyone's life was the same as mine. But I think it also gave me a bit of a sense of maybe responsibility that because of, because of that, I had some 
obligation to try and contribute to, uh, to, to levelling the playing field for people, I guess. So some of those, you know, really childhood experience probably drove me to, to think things like social work and so on were fairly important and to make a difference at the individual level would be, um, has been a bit of a, I guess, a vocation for me in some ways. Yeah. So you can see even in the stuff that I do now, mm-hmm. that's still a bit of a feature of uh, what I'm doing and what I'm about. So, yeah, it's interesting how these sort of early childhood experiences are so formative for your whole life trajectory, really. Well, I was just going to offer the two examples that you cite, both uh, my read on them, and I've, I've visited um, you know Pacific Island nations before, and I understand that their view on community mm. is very deep and very rich, um, as I would imagine would be a small country town like Burke. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, and the importance of community. Yeah, and you can see that both problems, but also sort of uh, community, I guess, assets or strength or resilience of those places often comes from, yeah, the community itself. You know, the interactions between people. So I think I think yep. you're right. You know, so whilst you can have these sort of emphasis on the the problems in uh, and the challenges of communities and so on, it's it's true, you know, like a lot of strength and a lot of the great things about living in those places do come from the fact of community, the fact of being connected to other people, even though, you know, it's, it's the sort of the upside and the downside. Um, yeah. You, you live in each other's back pockets for, for good and bad. Um, and so that, yeah, really gave me, I guess, uh, an insight into that that was not something I necessarily felt later in my teenage, teenage years, having moved back to Sydney and so on. Um, but still was something that I felt like I wanted to be involved in and work on. So, yeah. You don't have two more polar opposite experiences, though. I mean, Burke, <laughs> you look one way and you see dirt, you look the other way and you see dirt, and then some more dirt. Yeah. Vanuatu is in the middle of the Pacific. <laughs> yeah. Um, look, I, I, and I guess um, I guess that's true, but in a way, both of them, the unifying thing was um, feeling a bit disconnected from the rest of the world, um, that sort of material poverty, which wasn't necessarily, didn't necessarily mean a cultural poverty or anything like that, but mm-hmm. it, was, it was interesting. And the, the thing that's also really hard to appreciate now is that both places are far more connected to the world now than they were then. So, like, in the early 80s, there were direct flights to Burke, which there aren't anymore. But, um, you know, like, it was a 12-hour trip. You know, literally the only TV channel was um, the ABC. Uh, You know, there was one local radio station. So you felt Mm. quite far removed from the world, you know, Um, whereas now you can get, you know, internet and so on with reasonable access and so on, it, it is a bit of a game changer because it means you can seek out your communities of interest that are more global in nature. Similarly, in Vanuatu, you know, like it cost a fortune to just make an overseas call, you know, um, where you could... I, would, <laughs> I used to listen to the shortwave radio through the scratchy signal to get most of the news from the world in in the 80s. So it's, it felt extremely far away. So even the notion of things like email and so on, it's just um, mm. 
it's astonishing the idea of being able to communicate with people and get a response within the same day, which was really not tenable within that sort of um, world. Yep. Uh, so it's a bit hard to sort of explain now and um, to people what it felt like to be living in those communities in an era when it did feel like overseas meant, you know, a, a meaningful di- difference, you know, like the now it's hard to even imagine a, a setting you could actually be in and feel quite as disconnected from the rest of the world. So a good example is like um, Tiananmen Square Massacre. I'd heard a little bit of coverage about on the shortwave radio, but it actually wasn't until three months later when I managed to get my hands on an English um, language version of Time magazine that I actually saw the first photos of that and so on. So it's, you know, the idea of that, which was such a defining event for the late 80s for a lot of people, was actually like a something that was barely understood in whispers and seen three months later in images um, for me. So it was interesting, like both those places, even though, you know, it's the red dirt and the ocean, like you said, are very different, they do, in my mind at least, have that sort of commonality of being feeling like you're quite far removed from the rest of the world. So mm. um, in my brain and in my sort of lived experience, that they actually feel kind of similar in a way for that reason because they did feel like mm. worlds unto themselves. You weren't at the centre of civilization, I guess, is the thing. And that, <laughs> and that actually was quite a fortunate experience. And like I said, it's the kind of experience that you probably can't really replicate anymore. So it was an interesting time. What one thing would you change about your life today? Oh, mate, that's a tricky one. <laughs> I actually genuinely feel quite fortunate. I wish I had more time, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I say that because uh, something I started doing towards the end of last year is keeping a, a journal, which I've sort of done periodically at other stages in my life, but trying to document and write every day about what's happened and just some, you know, musings, I guess, to try and build up the practice of being a little bit more reflective about life, even though I do find mm-hmm. myself just sort of reciting the events that have happened far too often. But it does, it has been a really useful thing for me to do because it does force me to actually try and put life in context. And what's what I've, I guess what I've taken away from that is that I do feel generally more grateful, but also this, it's led me to sort of recognise that the any feelings of frustration or being a bit harried or stuff that I think about where it's like, oh, I shouldn't have gone gone crook at the kids about that. Like, you know, you'd you'd appreciate you're a dad. You know, it's just a litany of, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Um, At the core of it all is just wishing that I had a little bit more time to devote Mm -hmm. to the things that matter. Now, not that I'm particularly time poor or, you know, like there's people who, really spread much more thin than me but i just think it's it's the thing that i i think would make a difference in all our lives is the time to reflect to actually put everything in context spend the time with the people that are important you know that that sort of thing so yeah a little bit more time would make the world of difference i think it's the only thing that we can't buy isn't it yeah, very true yeah very true yeah and so you know like uh but someone like me who does is very fortunate in the life I lead and so on, um, it, it probably, like you said, it is the, the one thing that we can't just sort of um, outsource or conjure up, you know. It's like you, you really, 
you're forced to confront um, competing demands and priorities and stuff like that. So I think that's why I wish I had um, more time is just so I could actually devote it to the things that are important rather than just the things that are urgent. You know? Yeah. What are you going to achieve in the next 12 months? Oh, mate. <laughs> I've no idea. <laughs> I've never been really good at being a um, forward thinker or a forward planner, you know, like I tend to, mm. I tend to have a bit of a broad sense of direction and purpose, uh, but I'm not someone who's been really good at sort of having a, a sort of goal or, you know, like where I'm going to be in two or five or 10 years. Like I've never had any strong yep. sense of that. I think, so I think, you know, in the next year, I'd like to probably, uh, you know, continue to be hopefully an okay presence in the lives of my family and friends. Um, I, I guess in terms of things that I want to achieve, maybe... You know, there's always the, the work-related task stuff that you think, oh, yeah, I should be getting onto that mm. and trying to embed that or get a bit more certainty about this, that, and the other. That'd be good. But um, I guess, uh, you know, those things, spend a bit of time uh, with, you know, people that I currently don't spend as much time as I'd like to. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I've, I'm, like I said, I've always been someone who sort of goes a bit with the flow has a general sense of direction mm. but i'm i'm hopeless on thinking about stuff i must do or achieve and so on so um what that tends to mean in practice is that i can be a little bit unfocused at times <laughs> twitter <laughs> um <laughs> and uh but it also does mean that i can tend to commit to too many things so i can go off in 80 different directions so um, look, I guess if I had to say one thing, it would be, you know, to really focus in on a, a couple of things rather than everything and, um, yeah, try and free up some of those things that uh, I mentioned in terms of getting a bit more time, you know. So part, part of that will be about making a few hard decisions about uh, maybe, you know, those things that you do that you waste all your time on. Yeah, maybe I need to give some of those things away. So, um but that's not a hard and fast uh, commitment or goal that I've got for myself. It's more me probably being philosophical about what I need to do over the next year. So, um, yeah, so, sorry, um, in answer to your question, I've got no idea. So. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not unreasonable. Yeah, sure. Well, and, you know, I, a, a challenge for me is always um, wanting to... Uh, achieve things or things I can, you can sort of point to and say, yeah, that was important or that made a difference um, versus just trying to, you know, survive, get through life as an adult, you know. These are these are the day-to-day -day tensions that everyone's mm -hmm. struggling with. So, um, And I think that's that, that's a tension for everyone. You know, it'd be uh, there's lots of stuff we could do or would like to do, but um, it, it's also about, you know, just trying to survive almost on a day-to-day -day basis. We had the flu uh, run through our family oh, yeah. in the last week and it's just like you get into bunker mode a little bit um, in times like that and it's it's often hard to get that bigger picture perspective and so on. So um, I think walking that line, that balancing act between wanting to have a few things you can say, oh, yeah, kicked a goal with that um, versus, yes, we... we 
made it through another week. You know, that's, the sort of, <laughs> that's what life is sometimes like as a grown-up, I think. Yes. Yes. All family members present and accounted for upright and breathing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Tick. <laughs> Goal. Goals met. So. <laughs> ben, thank you so much for the, the chance to chat with you today. Please know the things you've said are very special and you're highly valued. Thank you. Oh, thanks very much. Cheers. It was great to chat. Very clearly you're on Twitter. Are there any other social accounts that you want to alert people to? Oh, look... Most of my nonsense is on Twitter. Um, I am on, uh, I am on Instagram and so on. If people want to seek me out, but yeah, no, the the um, unique mixture of uh, incredibly boring and uh, sort of snarky and gossipy and lowbrow stuff that makes up the bulk of my timeline is at Ben underscore HR. So that's the best place to go. This has been Humans of Twitter. And I can confirm that at Ben underscore HR is indeed human. Thanks so much.